Okay, so now we're going to read the Bible. We're reading from the book of Job, which is just before Psalms. So if you've got a hard copy of your Bible, it's just about in the middle, just before the middle. We're starting in the first chapter of Job, just the first few verses. Um, These first few verses give us an introduction to Job and his family. So I'll just give you a moment to find those. Okay, it's from Job chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to hold feasts in their homes on their birthdays, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would make arrangements for them to be purified. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Now, Darren is going to speak to us about how Job's life was dramatically overturned, was turned upside down in the remainder of chapter 1 and through chapter 2. So we're going to jump ahead to chapter 3. I'm going to read all of chapter 3. And this is Job's response. He's lamenting what has happened. So starting from chapter 3 now. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, may no light shine upon it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more, may a cloud settle over it, may blackness overwhelm it. That night... May thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered in any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there needs to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest with kings and rulers of the earth who built for themselves palaces now lying in ruins, with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not hidden away in the ground like a stillborn child, like an infant who never saw the light of day? There the wicked cease from turmoil, and there the weary are at rest. Captives also enjoy their ease. They no longer hear the slave drivers shout. The small and the great are there, and the slaves are freed from their owners. Why is light given to those in misery and life to the bitter of soul? 
to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave. Why is life given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For sighing has become my daily food. My groans pour out like water. What I feared has come upon me. What I dreaded has happened to me. I have no peace, no quietness. I have no rest, but only turmoil. Thank you so much, Sue. It is such a sad chapter, isn't it? Let me start with another sad story. It was the 3rd of November, 2020, and Nick Challies, a Bible college student in the US, uh, he took a break from his studies to play a game with a group of friends. Suddenly, his heart stopped. His body fell to the ground and he was gone. His friends tried to revive him. The paramedics came, tried to revive him, but to no avail. Uh, He was 20 years old. Why did God do that? I mean, when some people suffer, uh, the violent, the corrupt, the godless, of course... We are sad, uh, but there's some moral logic to that. Why did God take Nick, a man who was dearly loved, who was so committed to serving Jesus? Why devastate his family, his fiancée, also keen Christians? It makes no sense. And why do those who couldn't care less about God so often thrive Do you ask questions like this? Do you feel the force of questions like this? Would you continue to trust God if he took away a son, a sister, a wife? Welcome to the book of Job. This is a real gear change from the series on generosity, isn't it? Uh, We've rejoiced in hearing about the abundant grace of our loving Heavenly Father in life, in creation, in the Lord Jesus, um, God's delight in making us new, to be kind and big-hearted like Him. The book of Job has a very different vibe. Uh, You've heard Job's lament in chapter 3. This is a man in deep pain. It is raw, confronting But it is real. This is the world we live in. And if you have not been to the dark places and asked the hard questions that this book throws up, thank God. But live long enough and you will. God has given us this book. 42 chapters of this book for our good. We're going to spend just six weeks immersing ourselves in the poetry, in the emotion of the book. And if we listen well, it will unsettle us, trouble us, but it will also strengthen our faith in the midst of suffering. 
uh, and I'm convinced it will protect us from false versions of Christianity um, and it will point us to the Lord Jesus, our saviour, the real saviour that our groaning world really needs. The book begins by introducing us to Job. There is much we don't know about Job. We don't know exactly where he lived. It was in the land of Uz, wherever that was. Uh, It was east of the promised land, somewhere there. Uh, We don't know when he lived. The cultural clues point to the time of Abraham or earlier. Um, Job lived before the nation of Israel and the law even existed. But somehow Job knew about the true and living God. There are two important things we do know about Job. First, he was a good and godly man. Verse 1. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. That word blameless doesn't necessarily mean free from sin. It's saying Job was a man of integrity. What you see on the outside is what he's like on the inside. It's the opposite of hypocrisy. Now, this is an important starting point. Job is known far and wide for being a genuine, godly man. Um, He was respected. Um, In verse 5, we see his love and concern for his family. There's no good reason for what's about to happen. He was also a very great man. He has a large family, seven sons, three daughters, Ten kids in all. These are ideal numbers. He has a vast fortune. Animals, servants. God has blessed him abundantly. Now this is exactly what you would expect from reading the book of Proverbs. Job feared the Lord and shunned evil. And so he was healthy, wealthy and wise. This is the way the world should be. There's just the hint of a shadow in this perfect world. Uh, In verse 5, Job is anxious. Perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. He knows that's possible. He knows how serious that would be. Um, And so he makes atonement in the way that he knows how, um, through costly sacrifice. But that shadow of sin is only a hypothetical possibility. In the beginning, everything is as it should be. Here is a good man enjoying a good life. This is the same man whose agonised lament we've just heard in chapter 3, who wished he'd never been born, who longed for the peace of death. So let's find out what happened. Let me keep reading from verse 6. One day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came with them. The Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. A man who fears God and shuns evil. Does Job fear God for nothing? 
Satan replied. Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? You have blessed the work of his hands, so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. But now, stretch out your hand and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, everything he has is in your power, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. So here the writer takes us behind the curtain into the heavenly courts. It's a day when God's ministers are summoned to report on their various areas of responsibility. And surprisingly for us, the Satan is there. This is a fascinating insight into the way that God's rule works. There is only one sovereign God who rules over all. But there are many unseen spiritual powers that serve God, both good and evil powers. The Satan is a title that means adversary. He hates God. He's utterly opposed to God and to his people. But even he has a role to play in God's world. God's question, have you considered my servant Job? It implies that part of Satan's role is to notice those who love God. And as we will see, to test the genuineness of their faith. Satan has noticed Job. There's no one on earth like him. But Satan suggests there's something else going on under the surface. Verse 9, this is the key question of the book of Job. Does Job fear God for nothing? Satan replied. This is, in fact, a shocking slander. It's a slur against Job. Satan's saying that Job only loves God because he likes the stuff that God gives him. Job's worked out the secret of success. Serve God, make the sacrifices, and then watch the blessings roll in. But Job's not really interested in the giver, only in the gifts. If the good things were to disappear, then Job would reveal his true colours and curse God to his face. That's Satan's spin on Job. But this is also a nasty criticism of God himself. Satan's suggesting that God is a fool and he's being conned by Job's devotion. He's using you, Satan says to God. And you're pleased with someone who's using you. What a naive fool you are. Can you feel the weight of that accusation? This must be addressed. How could we possibly know if God or the Satan were right about Job? Of course, God knows Job's heart. But there's only one way for the Satan... For Job, for the rest of us, to know the truth. And that is to take away all the blessings and see what Job does. 
put Job to the test. Then we'll see. And so, shockingly, God gives Satan permission to ruin his friend. Let's pick up the story at verse 13. One day, when Job's sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job and said, The oxen were ploughing and the donkeys were grazing nearby and the Sabaeans attacked and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The fire of God fell from the heavens and burned up the sheep and the servants and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another messenger came and said, The Chaldeans formed three raiding parties and swept down on your camels and made off with them. They put the servants to the sword and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, yet another messenger came and said, Your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at the oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house. It collapsed on them and they are dead and I am the only one who has escaped to tell you. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. What a day. The cruel hammer blows of Satan's fury fell again and again until everything Job had, even his sons and daughters, all gone. No wonder Job was feeling that raw pain that we heard in chapter 3. We need to remember that Job doesn't know anything about that conversation in heaven that we've just heard. We know why this Holocaust has been unleashed, but it's a complete mystery for Job. It's like massive airstrikes out of the blue from a coalition partner. All his life, Job has known God's blessing and favour, and now suddenly he's thrust into a nightmare. Put yourself in his shoes or try. How would you respond? Job's response, it's quite incredible. Of course, he is overwhelmed and he goes into deep mourning. Yet he does not shake his fist at God. He falls to the ground in humble worship. He does not rail against God in rage. He admits that all he had, his stuff, his children, life itself, came from the generous hand of God and God has every right to take it away. He trusts God. He praises the name of the Lord and he did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. 
some might say that he was in shock. This was a knee-jerk reaction before he'd really had time to process what had happened. Sure. But that's where his heart instinctively leaned to trust and praise and worship. Deep down, he knew that God is generous. God is all-powerful. So even in this nightmare, Job chose to trust God. It is impressive faith. So Job has passed the test. God was right. Satan was wrong. And that's the end of it, right? Wrong. This book keeps on surprising. It's only just beginning. Let's read what happened next. Chapter 2. On another day, the angels came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And the Lord said to Satan, Where have you come from? Satan answered the Lord, From roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity, though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Skin for skin, Satan replied. A man will give all he has for his own life. But now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die! He replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. So the pattern here is just like the first time. Um, The Lord and Satan have another conversation in heaven. Satan doubles down on his slander, asks to go deeper and more personal with Job's terrible trial. Job is humbled even further. Now he's sitting on the town rubbish heap, scraping at his weeping flesh with a shard of broken pot. There are a couple of new things to notice. We discover a bit more about Satan's intentions in harming Job. Um, Verse 3, God says, You incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. Satan wanted all along to ruin Job. He is a liar and a murderer, delighting in destruction. But Satan never operates off-leash, as it were. We see here, even more clearly, God's sovereign control in Job's suffering. So God is ultimately responsible for what is happening to Job. 
You incited me against him, God says. But God sets precise boundaries around what Satan is allowed to do. Chapter 1, everything he has is in your power, but on Job himself do not lay a finger. Chapter 2, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Satan is powerful and evil, but he is still, in Luther's phrase, God's Satan. There is only one God, and nothing happens in God's world, good or evil, outside of God's will. What that means, and we'll come back to this in a moment, is that God must have his own good purposes in allowing bad things to happen. We must not think that this conversation is a casual thing, or worse, that somehow God is in partnership with Satan. They want completely different things. The Satan desires Job's destruction. God desires that Job's faith be proved genuine. Satan wants us to curse God in our suffering. God wants us to praise and honour him as the one who can carry us safely through suffering. So, God allows Job to suffer more terribly. Even his wife tempts Job to do what Satan wants him to do. But again, Job stands firm in his faith. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? He knows God, the creator, the author of all good gifts. Can he not trust this same God to give him trouble and believe that he knows best? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job has passed the test. Surely, Satan's cynical question has been answered. The trial is finished. But no, there will be months of agony. Forty chapters of heart-rending questions and groanings. Heaven will be silent until God finally speaks in chapter 38. Job will be vindicated, but it's not soon. So let's draw together the threads of what we've seen in Job's story. First, Job's suffering was undeserved. Again and again we hear, Job was blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Though he suffered horrendously, it was undeserved. As we read on, Job's friends cannot believe this, but it's true. And for some of us, this might be a new thought. We live in a world of cause and effect. If we do stupid or wicked things, usually there will be painful consequences. Cruel words lead to broken relationships. Uh, driving under the influence endangers lives. And God's judgment for sin can be seen when he hands people over to live out their sinful desires or when he calls time on our rebellion through sickness and death. But here is another 
category of suffering for us to be aware of. Sometimes God allows innocent, godly people to suffer terribly. Job's story bears this out. He suffered because he was an outstanding believer. Jesus' story says this even more dramatically. Jesus was not just blameless, he was sinless. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And yet, Jesus was persecuted, humiliated, crucified because he was God's light of truth blazing in our dark world. There is a false version of Christianity that is incredibly popular all over the world. It says, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy and successful. God wants you to be happy and fulfilled. And if you are suffering, if you're poor, sick, depressed, then you must be the problem. It's obvious, you lack faith. There must be sin in your life. Don't believe it. That version of Christianity is not true. Job's story exposes the lie. Jesus' story blows it up. Undeserved suffering is a thing. There are many reasons for our suffering. Sometimes it is because of stupidity or sin. Sometimes it is God's judgment or God's discipline to wean us from this world, make us holy. Sometimes it's just because we are creatures caught up in this fallen, decaying creation. But sometimes, if we are followers of Christ, we do not deserve the suffering that comes. This is because we participate in the sufferings of Christ. Here's just one of many places that speak about this in the New Testament. 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. The New Testament writers tell us that Satan is still at work in our world. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour, 1 Peter 5. He thrashes around like an angry dragon, Revelation 12, trying to take his frustrations out on Christians because he knows that his time is short. He cannot hurt us really. His stinger has been ripped out. His accusations are empty for those who are in Christ. He might hurt our bodies, but we will be raised to eternal life. So Jesus teaches us to pray. Lead us not into the time of trial, as the NRSV puts it. 
but deliver us from the evil one. And the Apostle Peter says, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Job's suffering was undeserved. Our suffering, because we are Christians, is undeserved. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be discouraged. We live in a dark world and we walk in the footsteps of Christ. Second, God allows Job's great sufferings for his own great purposes. We've seen that God is truly sovereign. He knows exactly what each of us is going through. Not one hair of your head will fall to the ground apart from our Heavenly Father's say-so. And God has his own good purposes in everything. Why did Job suffer? We know God allowed it in order to disprove a terrible slander. Satan accused Job of being a fake and, of, and God of being a fool. And the only way that Job and God could be publicly vindicated was through the testing fire of that horrible suffering. So far, Job has stood firm in faith. He has persevered. Now it's clear to everyone, to Satan, to Job, to his friends, to us, that his faith is the real deal. It's also becoming clearer that God is worthy of adoration and praise in himself. Job clings to God when God is all he has. The big question is about God's character. Is he trustworthy? Is he good? Is he powerful? These things are important. Knowing these are true is of critical importance. And so God allows this story to unfold so that the truth might be made public. We will come to see that God is not just able to put a hedge around his favourites to protect them from suffering. He is able to hold on to them in the midst of horrendous suffering and bring them safely through to the other side. We would not know this unless Job had suffered. You might say, sure, that's all good to know, but was it really worth putting a loyal friend through the ringer like this? It's all so brutal. Well, obviously, God thought that it was worth the price of Job's suffering. And one day, when we see the unshielded glory of God, we will agree. There is no price too great to enhance his glory. God even sent his beloved son to the cross to reveal the glory of his character. Job's story prepares us for the coming of Jesus. Job is a Christ-like man. Even more than Job, Jesus was thoroughly good and very great. And yet Jesus endured horrendous unjust suffering. Satan provoked wicked men to accuse, abuse and eventually murder him. God allowed that to happen. 
And as Jesus hung on the cross, many saw him there and wrote him off as a fraud, a blasphemer. But they were wrong. God allowed Jesus' great sufferings for his own great purposes, for our salvation, for the revealing of his glory. God is faithful to his promises. God is gracious and powerful, conquering sin, death, the devil, through the death and mighty resurrection of Jesus. We would not know this unless Jesus had suffered. No greater price can be paid. The Father's heart is on show for all to see. And now we who believe have been caught up in God's cosmic purposes. Here's Colossians 1. He's rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We've been caught up into this great spiritual battle of good and evil. For the time being, God allows Satan to continue his tormenting. And let me show you one purpose that God has in this. I hope you'll find it encouraging. Apostle Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1, reminds us that we've been given new birth into a living hope, an eternal inheritance kept in heaven for us. We're shielded by God's power until Jesus returns. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. One day, God will receive praise, glory and honour because he has kept his own safe through all these trials. Because we should cry out to God, lament what is wicked and painful in our world, ask our questions. We should mourn with those who mourn. Job's story shows us all that. But our sufferings have this great purpose of bringing praise and glory and honour to our God. And so we should also rejoice in the Lord, in his good purposes, in allowing suffering into our lives. Last Friday, uh, Tim Challies, father of Nick, I mentioned earlier, wrote a reflection online on the three-year anniversary of Nick's death. He says how much he misses his son. He knows he will see him again. And he writes, In the meantime, God continues to grant us the grace to trust him. None of us have wavered in our confidence that God is good, and that in some way, even an experience as painful as this, is an expression of that goodness. None of us have allowed this to knock us out of the race or to give us an excuse to become less useful to the Lord's purposes. None of us have allowed this to rob us of our joy or to keep us locked endlessly in sorrow or lament. All of us have committed to staying true to the Lord, to living our lives well and to looking forward to that day when we will be together again. 
See, their faith has proved genuine. God is being honoured in the midst of deep grief. And Tim Challies mentions that future day. And so third, spoiler alert, uh, Job's sufferings are not the end of his story. Job had to wait probably months before he got any answers. Um, I won't keep you in suspense that long. Um, You can skip ahead and read the ending to the story in chapter 42. Uh, We will get there in our sermon series in about five weeks' time. God eventually speaks and reveals himself to be the awesome creator, the true ruler over the most terrifying evil beasts, even Satan. Uh, He vindicates Job, restores him to greatness, pours out on him every blessing. Once again, the world is as it should be. Of course, Job did not know at the time of chapter 1, 2 and 3 Uh, that it was going to work out like that. He chose to trust God in the darkness, in the limited light of what he did know about God. Uh, And this is where we are in a privileged position compared to Job. Not only have we seen the beauty of God's character so much more clearly in the gospel, uh, we have God's very great and precious promises um, about the future. Jesus will return. The spiritual forces of evil, including Satan, will be tossed into the lake of fire. Uh, There will be a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. God will receive the glory he deserves. As we journey through dark times, it can be overwhelming. I know. There is so much we can't know about why these things are happening why good people why me why now but we know the God who gave us his son we know that he loves us we know that he brings light from darkness and life from the dead so whatever happens let's keep on trusting him and singing blessed be your name Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, blessed be your name. We thank and praise you for the many ways you have blessed us, for the joys of this life, and especially for the gift of your Son. We bring our suffering and our griefs to you and our many questions. Please hold on to us and give us more grace. Please grow our assurance of your deep love for us in Christ. Please strengthen us by your spirit that we might patiently endure. Thank you for your promises to be with us in the midst of every trial and to bring us safely to a new creation. We pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen.